You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. My name's Chuck Pope, and I serve alongside my wife, Christy Pope, in our premarital ministry. This morning, I'm going to be reading from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. There should be a Bible in the chair in front of you if you don't have one, if you will turn with me there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with a conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chuck. Church family, good to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, if you're a guest among us, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful to be with you in our study in 1 Timothy. If you're not already there, go ahead and make your way there. 1 Timothy, this letter in the New Testament. We started uh, several weeks ago looking at this uh, really important letter in our Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to his young protege, Timothy, who's a pastor that had been appointed there in Ephesus, one of the leading cities of Asia Minor and all of the Roman Empire. And, and uh, he wrote, 1 Timothy 3, 14, 15, is going to tell us that he, he wrote this letter so that one may know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. In a sense, this is kind of like a blueprint for the church and, and, and why we are here and how we are to uh, order ourselves in, in the affairs of God's business so that the church can flourish, the mission of God can flourish, and God can receive all the glory. But some false teachers had begun to hijack the church, and so Paul is writing to help correct some of these ways in which the church had been drifting so they can bring order back into uh, alignment here. And we saw last week as we went through chapter 2, um, the beautiful complementary roles that God has designed for our good and his glory in the uniqueness of men and women and how we function together as brothers and sisters in the church. And when doing so, we saw there's one particular office uh, within the church, within the, the senior leadership of the church that is appointed not just for any man, but for a qualified man. And, uh, and we see how important it is. In fact, last week we argued it, the issue of men and women in the church is not what a woman can or can't do. The question that really gets down to in the scriptures here is are the men that have been called to serve as elders in the church, are they fit for the role that they've been called to? And, um, and so what Paul's going to do in chapter 3, he's going to pivot here to these qualifications. What is it that qualifies said man to serve as an elder in Christ church. And uh, this issue of leadership, whether it be in the church or whether it be uh, in any other uh, position in the world, 
politics, business, whatever it may be. When you think of what qualifies somebody to be a leader, what floods your mind? And what are we typically putting uh, on the pedestal uh, in our culture for what we're asking of leaders? Whatever that is, I want you to skim chapter three, verses one through seven and see if that image aligns there. What do you see in the first seven verses of chapter three when you just kind of survey it? You're gonna find there is only one qualification that Paul's gonna speak to within the church of an elder that is skill-based, that is ability-based or gift-based. The rest of these qualifications, 13, 15 of them somewhere in here, they are all going to be character-based of godliness. And you need to know right out of the gate, this flies in the face of so much of the values that our world puts on leadership. Like it's almost the opposite. We are so quick to usher in men and women in leadership positions that are talented, that are good looking, that are charismatic, that can articulate well, they're thought leaders, they're very creative. We have all these things. And sometimes character is just kind of a, a background wallpaper to decorate it all. But that's not what you see with the Apostle Paul here. And um, in fact, uh, a guy by the name of Bobby Jameson wrote this book, The Path to Being a Pastor, I highly commend it to you. Uh, He quotes in here, this is so interesting when you juxtapose uh, juxtapose this, he quotes an article by a guy named Andrew Wilson who puts side by side a real pastoral job description of a well-known mega church in the United States in the 21st century. And he puts it side by side with an actual written pastoral job description from the sixth century uh, in Rome. And it is vastly different. Just listen to this. See if you can highlight some of the differences here. Again, I'm not gonna name this church, all right? We'll keep it anonymous here, but... This is the job description, 21st century Western America megachurch. The senior pastor will lead and serve this church in all its locations so that it can become a thriving, healthy family of local churches. This man or woman will provide overall leadership and vision for the entire network of regional campuses. They will ensure this church's vision and strategy is clear, understood across all locations, that the right leaders are leading and serving and that this church is positioned for strength well into the future. The senior pastor will have the ability to dream and cast vision for the next season of congregational life and impact. Goes on to say that he or she will be a proven leader of leaders who can motivate and inspire high capacity men and women to use their gifts to further the vision. So that is one set of criteria. Now listen to a same pastoral job description of a church in the the 6th century, 500s. He must therefore be a model for everyone. He must be devoted entirely to the example of good living. He must be dead to the passions of the flesh and live a spiritual life. He must have no regard for worldly prosperity, never cower in the face of adversity. He must desire the internal life His intention should not be thwarted by the frailty of the body nor repelled by the abuse of the spirit. He should not lust for the possessions of others, but freely give his own. He should be quick to forgive through compassion, but never so far removed from righteousness as to forgive indiscriminately. 
He must perform no evil acts, but instead deplore the evil perpetrated by others as though it was his own. In his heart, he must suffer the afflictions of others and likewise rejoice at the fortune of his neighbor as though the good thing was happening to him. He must set such a positive example for others that he has nothing for which he should ever be ashamed. He should be such a student of how to live that he is able to water the arid hearts of his neighbors with the streams of doctrinal teaching. He should have already learned by the practice and experience of prayer that he can obtain from the Lord whatever he requests, as though it was already said to him specifically by the voice of experience that when you are speaking, I will say, here I am. You can't find two different sets of criteria. Uh, In one, sounds like a godly shepherd who's tethered into God's word and God's spirit and dependence and prayer, and the other sounds like they're leading a Fortune 500 company. Now, here's the deal. It is not that other qualifications don't bear any weight when it comes to leadership. Even at Northway Church, when we interview staff or when we appoint volunteer leaders, usually we're running said individual through what we call the five C's, maybe use them as well, but we'll look and say, we'll start with calling. Does this person really aspire to do this? Do they want to do this? Like, or is this just a a flippant gig for them? Or they really wanna be dialed into this, this service? Uh, will measure competency. Do they have the knowledge and skills to even carry out the role of this responsibility faithfully? Certainly that matters. We look at capacity. Do they, are they, in the, do they have the bandwidth? Are they in the season of life to bear the load of the weight of this responsibility? We'll look at chemistry. Do they work well as a team? Are they going rogue? Are they just obscenely weird? Um, you know, that, that, that makes this thing not work? Y'all know what I'm talking about. But... There is one C that will cancel out all the other C's if it's not in place, and that is character. If there is one thing leadership in the church is missing these days, and I would argue leadership in the world, when you look at politics right now and you look at uh, corporations that are being run, if there is one thing that is lacking more than anything else today, it is not talent, it is character. It is godly character. Why is this so important to the Apostle Paul concerning the church? Because as the leadership goes, so goes the church. See also what's happening in Ephesus with corrupt leaders who are taking over and pulling people, God's people, off mission and out of order. No, character matters. I want you to see how Paul begins this in chapter 3 verse 1 comes right out of the gate and he says, this saying is trustworthy. This is one of those five trustworthy statements we're going to see through the pastoral epistles. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, there are three words that are used oftentimes interchangeably in the New Testament to describe the same office. The first word that we see mentioned right here is the word overseer. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's the Greek word, I'll nerd for a little bit, but it matters. The word episkope, which comes from also episkopos, which means one who oversees or one who is in authority over. It's overseer. You, you may have even, we, get the, we get the denominational term episcopalian from this word. Episkopos, an overseer. 
But when Paul writes his letter to Titus, another pastor that was in the island of Crete, we're gonna read next after this letter, Paul, in describing the same office that he's doing here, uses not one term, but two terms for it. He uses episkopos, and he also uses the word presbyteros. Now, we get the term presbyterian out of this. It simply means one who is an elder. The etymology of elder can refer to one who is old, older, old in age, but in this case, it's the office of elder. Um, In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is communicating with the very elders who are in the backdrop of this letter there in Ephesus, and he's describing the role of this office, he uses three words in there, episkopos, presbyteros, and he uses another term, poimano, which is a verb, which is a verb that means to pastor or to shepherd. It's only used one time in the New Testament as, as a noun, and that's the office of pastor. Everywhere else, it's the verb, uh, the function. that literally means one who tends a flock or one who feeds a flock. Now, watch these all come together when Peter writes to the elders that he's writing to in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. Listen to how he puts this together. So I exhort the presbyteros, the elders, the plural elders that are among you as a fellow presbyteros, elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the charge that he gives to this office. Poimano, the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd, this is what an elder does. Um, we, We shepherd, shepherd the flock that is among you. As you do so, exercising episkopos, oversight, oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So these three terms used in this way, the primary leaders of the church are elders who are tasked to oversee the local body of Christ who pastor and shepherd that body with care. So all that to say here at Northway, it's why you're gonna hear us use the words elder and pastor interchangeably. Next week, we'll talk about the role of deacon and you'll hear deacon and minister used interchangeably. But here, this is why we refer to these as one and the same. Now, that being said, I want you to notice what kind of person is to serve as this overseer, this elder, this pastor. There are two prerequisite qualifications followed by one umbrella qualification and out of that flow 13 core qualifications. Just stay with me. I'll make sure you don't get lost, all right? The two prerequisite qualifications we're told here in verse one, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. One is that this is a role that is appointed for a man. The, the, in verse one, the article that is used there is not the general article for mankind. It's specifically a male. In verse two, it's explicit. But as we've talked about before, it's not just any male. Any man is a qualified man, as we're about to see here in just a moment. But uh, secondly that this man must aspire for this role as overseer, as elder. 
Now that word aspire means to eagerly desire. Now here's the deal. Aspiration for leadership is not a bad thing when your aspiration is for service, not status. That's the difference between a ungodly aspiration and a godly aspiration. Ungodly wants this for power, wants this for position, wants this for fame and notoriety. And we have too many of those leaders that are pursuing that. No, this role in Christ church is one who is aspiring a noble task. It is a service. They feel compelled to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by nourishing and taking care of his body. That's what they're called to here. That's what they aspire to in that regard. Um, We have had many men in this church whom we have asked to consider serving as an elder who we felt were qualified by what we're about to read but they simply felt they just didn't want to. Either they didn't want to or they couldn't. Either way, that's okay. Not everybody who's qualified is gonna be an elder, is gonna aspire to be an elder, but it must be there for the ones who do. This can't be a flippant gig. We can't have somebody that we're dragging in as a martyr to come lead in this role. Okay, if nobody else will. You you wanna wanna aspire to eagerly desire that. Um, Now, on the other hand, there are many out there who may indeed aspire to this role, but only a certain kind of man who is qualified is the one who should be appointed to fulfill it. And so let's look at these qualifications now. First, right out of the gate in verse two, we are given an umbrella qualification. He says, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. This is a term, above reproach, is a term that is going to summarize all the other qualifications that will follow. It is a term that literally means you're unable to apprehend. We would use the phrase hands off. Meaning this elder, this man will in no way be perfect because that man doesn't exist outside of Jesus Christ, but he's got to have the kind of life before the Lord that you're not able to lay a hand of accusation on this man. That there's not some ongoing, unrepentant um, abdication in his life that would serve as a a disqualification or an accusation that you could lay hand on and grab hold of in him. Again, not perfect, but by God's grace, he is embodying what the rest of these qualifications are. He is above the line of credible accusation. Now, what are those areas we're talking about? 13 core qualifications that Paul lists here. It's roughly the same list that is gonna be in Titus with about four differences, but they're all related. Roughly the same list here. Let's start here with the first one. And notice out of all these things, there's only one that is a skill or a talent or a gift. The rest are all Moral or character qualifications. The first one is that an elder must be a husband of one wife. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean and what that does mean. It means, I don't believe this is speaking about that in order to be an elder in Christ church, you have to be married. I don't think that's what's speaking. Singles are exempt. Uh, Can't do it anymore. They're disqualified. I don't think that's what it's speaking of because if you're gonna hold that line, he's gotta be married Well, two things are going to make that challenging. One is that in verse four, 
you're going to have to follow that same literal line. And so an elder is going to have to have at least two kids. If you have one kid, can't be an elder. Why? Because he uses the plural for children in here. It's got to be at least two if you're going to take that literal thinking. That's not what he has in mind here. Secondly, if that's true that you can't be single and be an elder, well, that's probably going to disqualify right, right away the man who's writing this letter and the man who's receiving this letter. The Apostle Paul and Timothy, who as far as we know from Scripture, were both single. So that's not speaking there. I think Paul is speaking to the most common regulative, regulative pattern that existed there in Ephesus with older men who were helping lead the church. And so with that in mind, there's a lot of debate that comes with this then. Okay, what is a husband of one wife? There's debate there. What does that mean? Does that mean that an elder, if he is married, can never have been divorced and can never be remarried under any circumstance whatsoever? One woman for all time, that's it. Now, some do take it that way. I know many churches, many, many folks who do hold that position, who feel that. I don't see that that is what Paul is speaking to here generally from. Uh, the Greek rendering of this literally would be translated a one-woman man. A one-woman man. We are speaking here about a man who is devoted in fidelity to the wife that he has made covenant with. That again, this is the normative pattern here. We're speaking to the health the godliness of one's marriage as it stands. Now, certainly, if there is a man who has been trading spouses, like many of us swap out our streaming platforms about every other month, that man's not qualified anyways. Any man who's gonna abandon his wife, go have an affair and cheat on his wife, be unrepentant about it, is not fit for the office of elder, no. But this is where I believe the idea that this man has to be faithful in the covenant that he is with his wife, and the church is gonna have to use wisdom here to understand what are the contexts behind a, maybe a divorce that preceded it? What led to that? Um, and, and I think that's why here at Northway, whenever we interview an elder and he's married, we're always spending time with his wife as well because we want to know what is the health of this home? Is this man the same out in public as he is in your marriage? Is there anything going on in your marriage um, that would be ungodly? that would be unhealthy, um, that would not be fitting for this man as he begins to take on the role of helping shepherd the family of God as the church. He is simply speaking about the health and purity of his marriage here. Secondly, in verse two, this man must be sober-minded. Now that can also be translated temperate. It has to do uh, with, in regards to his calling and his duties that are held with sound judgment and purpose. In fact, this word for sober-minded, it's used only in four other places in the entire New Testament. And every single one of those places, it's always in reference to the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. Meaning that this guy is gonna take serious the death, the burial, the resurrection, the, the rule and reign and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just some game he's playing. It's not just some tertiary uh, value in his life. No, the, the mission of Christ has seized this man at his deepest levels. He understands why he is on planet earth. This isn't just another gig for him. This, is, this isn't just one of 10 boards that he's sitting on right now and just kind of 
getting some merit badges for the places that he leads. No, this is a man who has been set apart by God for the good of the church in service of the church and stewarding the household affairs of God. And he takes it seriously because he knows God's glory is on the line and the health of God's church is on the line. Alexander Strzok, who wrote a book called um, uh, Church Eldership, and it is one of the best books out there on it, he, in my opinion, he, he talks about the importance that every elder has got to be able to live a prune life. Like you, it can't just be one of 50 things that you're doing. There, there has to be some pruning so you can give faithful devotion with sober-mindedness to this role. Third, in verse two, he is to be self-controlled. This is actually a fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter five, one of the things that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a believer is self-control. It means that this man in this, this sense is not enslaved to some lesser passion of unbridled emotion and of, of lusts of his flesh that have taken over his life and utterly taken control of him. No, this man has placed himself under the lead of the Holy Spirit. He is in submission to the will of God through the Holy Spirit in accordance with God's word. And that shows up in all areas of his life. Could be his diet, certainly his time, his mouth, his actions, his disciplines, his relationships, his sexual morality. All these things, his finances, they are in, under the control of the Holy Spirit and in submission to the will of God, not his flesh. And so... Those things don't control him, the spirit does. Fourth, we see this in verse two. Y'all still with me? This is an exhilarating message of lists. <laughs> Hang with me, they're important. He is to be respectable. The elder of Christ's church is to be respectable, verse two. It's also translated admirable. So that his character and his actions have him held in high regard and in high esteem rather than simply being regarded as indecent, improper, as crass, which aren't fitting for a pastoral leader. He has a life, in other words, that is worth emulating. It's not perfect, but much like the Apostle Paul, it's follow me as I follow Christ. Flaws and all, follow me as I follow Christ. He is to be respectable. Fifth, verse two, he's to be hospitable. Now we need to be careful here. Hospitality in the Bible doesn't mean someone who's killer at making place settings around the table. Doesn't mean they've got this cool craft shop set up on Etsy. This is not Martha Stewart we're talking about here of hospitality. The word here means to pursue strangers. It's one who knows how to welcome the weary, who knows how to receive the one that is in need, even if it's one's own enemy. Um, one pastor put it this way, the word hospitable, in terms of an elder, hospitable, means there's a hospital in him. He's able to receive those who are wounded and can treat them in accordance with God's word. An elder's church, an elder's home, an elder's life is to be an open respite where others can receive mercy. That's what it's for. Sixth, verse two. Now here comes our only skill-based, gift-based character or qualification in this whole list. Able to teach. Able to teach at the end of verse two there. Um, 
He is to be able to teach God's word. Now, this doesn't mean that he's got to be eloquent in his delivery and perfect in articulation. He's got to be a master expositor and a published theologian. But it means he must be able to handle God's word accurately. And he must be able to defend sound doctrine. Whether he's before one person, two people, 20, 200, or 2,000, doesn't matter. In fact, most of the churches that were in uh, the church that was in Ephesus were house churches, small little house churches scattered around. When Paul writes to Titus, he's essentially going to say what this is, is the elder has an ability to refute false teaching and encourage believers in sound doctrine. Now, it's interesting because certainly we're going to see a pattern emerge in the New Testament where in a plurality of elders, there tends to be one or two who kind of rise up as more gifted or more set apart for the teaching role in the gathering, a, um, uh, a leader amongst equals, so to speak. But generally speaking, the normative pattern is that there is a plurality of elders and all of them have an ability to do so. I'm so thankful for the elders of our church. Though you may see myself or Matt Younger, others who are up here handling uh, the pulpit on Sundays, our elders are all over, their thumbprints all over this church, teaching in various rooms and nourishing the body through God's word. And any one of them have the ability to, to spot, to identify, to refute and correct false teaching that's coming across the grain. And so thankful for that, that is embraced here. Seventhly, he's not to be a drunkard, verse three. Now, there's a difference between being drunk and drinking. He doesn't say that an elder can't enjoy alcohol. He just cannot be enslaved to it. Nowhere in the scriptures is drinking alcohol forbidden unless you're taking a Nazarite vow. That's it. But the scriptures do forbid being drunk. Why? Because this goes back to the idea of being self-controlled. And in this way, this could be idiomatic of any addictive substance that has taken over your life where you are no longer controlled by the Holy Spirit, you are controlled by the addictive substance. Whenever you're drunk, you're inebriated. You can't think right. You can't walk in a straight line. You have no control over your life anymore. This thing does. And, And for the elder and for the member of Christ's church, part of the fruit of the Spirit is that we are to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So alcohol certainly is a piece of that, of being one who is given and enslaved to being drunk. Eighth, verse three, he is not to be violent, but instead gentle. We've got to understand no man is going to be of any use in the kingdom of God and in God's kingdom purposes who is quick-tempered and flies off the handle. That's never going to be a healthy thing. The difference between how Jesus demonstrated his anger and how we tend to demonstrate our anger is that Jesus was always angry righteously at the abuse of others in the name of religion and in the dishonoring of God and his word, we simply get angry at how it affects us. His was a righteous anger. We've got to guard against unrighteous anger. An elder is going to be probably an elder is going to be most prone to inflict violence through his words. And so he's got to be able to guard his speech in particular, but other areas of his life, he's called to be a peacemaker in this regard. One pastor said he's got to be able to have rabbit fur on him, that he can speak truthfully, but it's got to be done in gentleness. 
which is also a fruit of the Holy Spirit that is to be born in all of believers' lives. Ninthly, this is connected to it in verse three, is that he's not to be quarrelsome. Some translations say he's to be peaceable. It has the idea of not being an agitator. And we all know somebody like this, and some of us are some like this, people who just love to pick fights, just love to dig, love to just just dig and love to be contrarians, love to push back on everything, Uh, who love to create division when there didn't exist any before. No, this man is to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. In addition, this can also be translated, he's not to be double-tongued, which means you're not to have an elder who's one man in one room and then he goes into another room and says something completely different. All that does, that kind of hypocrisy just serves to stir the pot and create division in the Lord's church. Man is to be a peacemaker, the elder is. Tenthly, he's not to be a lover of money, verse three. Now, Paul's gonna say in chapter six of this same letter, he's gonna say that the love of money is the the root of all kinds of evil. Pay attention. He didn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And so it's fitting here that the elder would lead the way in this. This is a man who has changed his currencies. He's not enslaved to the world's lust for wealth and accumulation. He's chained to heaven's currencies and seeking to steward it on earth as it is in heaven. He's got to be upright in his financial dealings. He can't be accused of pursuing money over the kingdom of God. That right there eliminates 99% of all televangelists that are on TV right now. 11th, he must manage his, his household well. We see this in verse four and five. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, the first flock for an elder is his family. It's family. It's pastor dad before he's pastor of Northway in our context. An elder's qualification for the church starts in his home. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, a father's role is to lead up his children in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. And it's interesting. I mentioned last week The two arenas that are most prominent where God has ordained a qualified man to serve as head is in his home and in the church, his own family and the family of God. And isn't it interesting here that these two are connected in this qualification? Um, If a man is unable to steward his household with godliness and care, then how can you expect him to steward God's household with godliness and care? Now, this doesn't mean that every elder's kid is going to be a Christian, that every elder's kid is going to be a scholar theologian. Please, let's get that out of our heads right now. If you want case in point, come visit with my family on that. But it does mean that as much as it depends on this man, the spiritual health of his home is going to be prioritized and it's going to be ordered the way that it should be in accordance with God's design. An elder's wife And an elder's children are not to be abdicated, not to hand over willingly what Titus, Paul will say to Titus, is called dissipation and rebellion. 
Not to turn a blind eye to what's going on in my family, but to pay attention there. The object of this man's qualification in this sense is less about the fruit that is found in his children, but more about the faithfulness that is found in their dad. That's what it's about. The day that I abdicate my role as my five daughter's dad is the day that I'm done here leading Northway. The day that I abdicate my role in serving my wife is the day that I'm done leading here at Northway. They are more important than my ministry. In fact, they are my ministry. And it must be a priority. Um, or else this man is not fit to lead God's family. Twelfth, see this in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Positions of authority without spiritual maturity lead to the trap of pride. And when pride grows in a man, then sin abounds in the church. Um, One pastor put it this way, this would be like taking a newly enlisted private in the army and putting the stripes and the hat of a general on him on day one. He would implode and he would take the whole unit down with him. Um, it's, It's the same root sin that we see in Satan in Isaiah 14 when Satan said, I will be like the most high. We have to guard pride. Oftentimes, baby believers, we've all been one if you're a Christian, baby believers can struggle with being too idealistic and not battle-tested when it comes to the doctrines of grace and sanctification in one's life. So it's important that an elder not be a new convert or too immature in their faith. doesn't mean they can't be young. It just means they can't be immature in their faith lest the church implode under that kind of leadership. Thirteenth, lastly, we see this in verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Two verses back to back mention the devil. You want to know the two things that the enemy will use to take out the leadership of a church quicker than anything else. It is pride in that man's leadership And it is in his being two-faced in the church and out in the community that disqualifies the very message that he's seeking to preach. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody, every non-believer that's out there is going to like, love, and appreciate their local pastor in 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 a town. By no means. It means, though, that this man's character is meant to commend his message with non-believers, not deny it. Like, they may not like my faith, they may not like what I stand for, but there should be no argument that my life has been radically changed by the grace of Jesus Christ that leads towards the good and the flourishing of other human beings. Um, We don't want an elder who is one person at church and another person with his coworkers, where it would be such a radical surprise if their coworker found out one day, you serve as a leader in your church? Whoa, really? We don't want that kind of inconsistency. Now, all of that, 13 there, 
walk through those pretty quick, and there's more that can be said there, but this is what Paul is speaking about. These are non-negotiable qualifications for those who are to hold the office of overseer, of elder, of pastor in the local church. If the primary under-shepherds of Jesus's church are to be ones who, according to Acts chapter six, are given to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of God's word, and according to Acts chapter 20, who are shepherding and caring for the local flock, then you cannot have an elder seeking to export what he himself does not possess. And so in this way, when you read this list here, all it's simply doing is speaking about what an elder must possess that is meant to be exemplifying what every believer should be pursuing. In fact, outside of teaching in this list, every other character is found, qualification is found in other places in the scripture pertaining to every believer that we should be pursuing. Now, here's what I'd love for us to do. If that's the case, if this is what an elder should exemplify, which is really what every member should be pursuing then maybe we need to take some time and ask the question, do we embody this as a church? Do we embody this? When we hold up God's mirror of what a believer has been saved to be, do we embody this? And where there are gaps, that's okay. Let's put them before the Lord and let's seek to walk in obedience by God's grace. How do we do this? Two things are required. Number one, you can't do this apart from regeneration, which means another fancy way of saying you got to have a new heart. And the only way that you can have a new heart is if you're willing to bend the knee and submit your life to Jesus Christ. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess that there is separation between you and God because of your own sin, your own rebellion, and that apart from him, you cannot save yourself. And then understand out of God's love and mercy, he has sent his son to do something about it. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sin, to shed his blood so that you could be forgiven. He rose from the grave three days later so that he could conquer sin, Satan, and death for you. By putting your trust in him, he saves you. And then once he saves you and he adopts you and and reconciles you back to God, he indwells you. God indwells you with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune God who comes and makes his dwelling within us. And he, his job, the Holy Spirit's job is to empower us to do what our flesh couldn't do on its own. That we would day by day, secondly now, after having a regenerate heart, we would then begin repenting. We would begin reforming. And we do that by day by day, in devotion to Jesus Christ, spending time in God's word, in prayerful dependence for the power of the Holy Spirit to make us into the image of Jesus Christ, to change our affections, to change our habits, to change our trajectory. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Day by day, we get on our knees in prayer and we commune with the Lord and we involve community around us. And we say, hey, do you see any blind spots in my life? Are there any areas in my life that don't line up with this? And then by God's grace, let's repent in community together. Let's hold one another accountable and let's pursue Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his godliness. Now, understand this. Along the way, our job as elders is to appoint more elders as needed. So there are times in the season of the church when we're gonna need more elders or some elders will roll off and we will go searching within the body to see who's embodying this. What qualified men are among us? 
And in that moment, we're going to appoint men from within this membership who embody that. Now, understand this. Not every qualified man is always going to serve as an elder in any of Christ's church. However, every elder has got to be qualified. And our heart's longing is that there would be such a pool available here at Northway Church that if that was met with aspiration and with these character qualifications and ability, that we would be able to appoint qualified men to this role. What happens when we get this wrong? See also Revelation 2. Christ will take out the lampstand of his church. God will not bless a church that tolerates ungodly leadership. And in that case, we're going to learn later on in 1 Timothy what happens when an elder falls. And if you're like me and you've seen even in the news of this past week of, of an elder of notable position who fell, it is heartbreaking. And it must be dealt with truthfully and graciously when that happens, but it must be dealt with. So God will not bless a church that tolerates ungodly leadership. Church, while it's the elder's burden to find and appoint leaders of this character and quality, it is your job to hold us accountable. It is your job to speak into these areas. You see any area in my life, any area in our elder's life that does not align with this, man, we want to know because by God's grace, we want to grow. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we want to pursue Christ in these areas. And we need you to hold us accountable in this. Our goal is to care, nurture, shepherd, provide oversight, and all prayer and sound teaching and all godliness so that the church can stay on mission and flourish for God's glory in the world. Amen? Let's pray to that end, okay? Father, just confess how humbling this is. Put your own life through this grid and a public sphere, but Lord, may by your grace you uphold the leadership of this church, that we would not waver in our relationship with you. We would not waver in godliness. We would not waver in sound doctrine. Lord, would you protect the leaders of Northway Church? Keep us free from scandal. Keep us free from immorality that would, that would bring such a devastating fall and hurt so many. God, Would you make us as a church, a people who embody these kind of qualifications, which is really just a faithful member of Christ's church. Would you help us to grow in this by your grace, through your power of your Holy Spirit, for your glory, for the good of the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.